Harvest Peoria, it is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Karen, and also one of our pastors, Chris, our soul care pastor, and his wife, Jen. And uh, we came into town last evening. We're able to go over and see Tim and Jonna for about an hour and just spend some time with them. And uh, I'm just so grateful. Every, every time I've been here, the last two times, I'll just say it again. I'm so grateful for your pastor. There's just a special... A relationship between Karen and I and Tim and John. I'll just say it. It's kind of a bromance thing, okay? That's all right. Uh, we can be men about it. And uh, uh, Tim and myself and also Chris as well, we were also, we were prior to ministry, um, we were in a business world. Chris was an aeronautical engineer. I was a business owner. And, and then we transitioned a little later in life uh, to doing uh, the wild, wacky, and wonderful world of pastoral ministry, and I'm just honored to be able to have us be able to be here with you this morning. Well, the two prior times I was here, I took you to a part of the, of the scripture that is one of my favorite parts, uh, end of Mark chapter 4, beginning of Mark chapter 5, and really, if I might say, kind of the theme was to see Jesus bigger. Um, I'm going to drive that nail home again today. Uh, I want us to enter in and see Jesus bigger, and in fact, I want to introduce you to the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1. And if you would, would you please open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 1. We're big about the Bible. We want to hear what God's Word has to say, right? Uh, That's what it's all about in that. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. In my own life and in doing life uh, in ministry with people, um, I think we tend to see Jesus way too small. Way too small. Um, if I might, I might say it in kind of words like, I think we tend to see movie Jesus. Or we tend to see kind of the hippie sandal preacher dude Jesus. Or we kind of may see the, the great orator and irritator of his day Jesus. Um, I might even say it this way. Um, be careful with this, but say it this way. I think sometimes we even get too stuck in seeing the incarnate Jesus. Because actually the incarnation of Jesus is the abnormal aspect of the reality of Jesus. Because in in eternity past, he was part of the second person of the Trinity. And then Philippians chapter 2, he comes and he puts feet on the ground. Thank the Lord for that, right? Feet on the ground. And then then heading into eternity future... Um, the incarnation was the odd part. And we kind of get stuck in thinking the incarnation is the normal part. So I want to blow our minds today, if I can. Not me, but God's word. Um, so Revelation 1 does that, and I think does that really well. Now, whenever people turn to the book of Revelation, they kind of are thinking automatically, freaky, uh, with the book of Revelation. Um, Let me just say it this way. The book of Revelation is not first and foremost about a future timeline. Now, some of you eschatological um, lovers um, are freaking out, but let me just say that again. Uh, The book of Revelation is not first and foremost about revealing a future timeline. The book of Revelation is first and foremost about revealing Jesus Christ, the one who holds all time. And it starts out in the kind of way that clearly puts that on the table for us. And I'll just say, my goal is actually very simple today. My goal is that we would walk out of here and go, oh my, he's bigger than when I thought coming in. 
my Lord is way bigger. And so we're going to go there. Here we go. God, I just ask for your help as we dive into this. Show us more of you. Right, church? Show us more of him. Well, here we are, Revelation chapter 1. As you know, it's, uh, it's at the end of the Bible. That means that there's a whole context of 65 books leading into the, the book of Revelation. Uh, let me sum those 65 books up, if I could, this way. Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. Oh, by the way, Colossians chapter 1, Jesus Christ is the agent of the Godhead in creation. Uh, uh, Genesis 1, God creates everything. Genesis 3, uh, things go bad. Uh, sin enters the picture. But I will note in, in the very chapter that sin enters the picture, the, the Lord is there and, and the Lord is telling us that there is going to be one that will come that will deliver a lethal blow. Fast forward, and this is quite a fast forward. First, fast forward to Mark chapter 1 or the beginning of the Gospels and bam, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, feet are on the ground, boots on the ground, Mark chapter 1. Thank the Lord for that. Then Mark chapter 15, he's crucified. Uh, he's bearing sin's payment from the Father. Uh, Mark chapter 16, Jesus walks out of the tomb and I would say it this way, the lethal blow was dealt. Satan thought he won on the cross, but out of the empty tomb, the lethal blow was made. And then you come into Acts chapter 1, and it's the ascension of Christ, and the resurrected Christ says that he will return. I could summarize, maybe, if you will, the sections of the Bible. The Old Testament gives us information about the coming Christ. The New Testament Gospels let us see the incarnate Christ. The New Testament Epistles give us more information about the Christ that came. But friends, Revelation... Revelation all of a sudden shows us a, a resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ like we do not see anywhere else in all of the scriptures. And it calls us to know about him and to see him in it. So let's do that. I want to begin with 10 things to know about the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. I'll begin in verse 1. Bible's open? Got him? Revelation 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop. Okay. Um, I may not read the whole thing uh, at one time. We're going to grab a piece at a time. The revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, in the Greek, it kind of carries two connotations to it. Number one, one thing to know about Jesus Christ is that he is the source. He is the source. He is the source of the book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the source of it. It also contains the idea in the original language. Not only is he the source, but he is also the subject of it. He is the source and he is the subject. What is the book of Revelation about? The book of Revelation is about the revealing of Jesus Christ the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate source. He is the ultimate subject of the book of Revelation. Revelation unveils Christ. It reveals Christ. I might say it this way. Revelation tadas Christ is what it really does in it. And uh, thank the Lord for it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." couple comments on that. Number one, note that the special revelation given it's his. Also note in here that the servants are his. 
Note that the angels are his. Note that John the doulos, the bondservant, is his. Uh, it's all his. It's all his. And by the way, since it's all his, it's kind of like, hey, it's all his. Don't touch it. Don't mess with it. And how interesting is that? Because the book of Revelation is one of the books of the Bible that gets so messed with. And we already start out, he's the source, he's the subject, and he's also the owner, if you will, on all of these things out of that. Look at verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud. I like that. But uh, Who's the one who reads aloud? But understand this, the book of Revelation was intended to be read aloud to people in churches at that time. The book of Revelation was not just intended to be like held in a seminary course or, or held in a eschatology future times conference. The book of Revelation was intended to be read to us, to God's people in his churches. Also with that, not only was it intended to be read, but you see it was intended to be heard. Blessed are those who read it, blessed are those who hear it. Hey, blessing, bring it on, right? Blessed is that. But also notice the third thing. Blessed are those who keep it. The book of Revelation is not just a conceptual theory, uh, uh, a debating book. The book of Revelation was intended to be read so that it's heard so that it would change lives. The book of Revelation is intended to make a difference in your and my life. It's to be read, it's to be heard, and it's to be worked out. It's to be having change and kept in our lives. Verse 4 and 5. Um, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Notice verse 4, it's John. Which John? This is John the Apostle. By the way, this is really important to understand in this first chapter. The one who is writing this is John the guy that walked with Jesus for like three years. Yeah, that one. One of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles, that one. One of the three inner kind of ones of the 12 disciples, it was that one. The John who is writing this is the John that talked with, interacted with, spoke with, listened to, uh, uh, joked with, uh, uh, inter interacted in life with, that's the John that's writing this. Why does that matter? You'll find out in just a minute because John is about to meet Jesus Christ again. But this is the John that knew Jesus for three years. I'll also note it gives a really cool Trinitarian account of the Godhead. Grace to you and peace from him, God the Father. Also, uh, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. A biblical terminology referencing the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. We have a Trinitarian understanding. Uh, note also in, in the text a few more things to know about Christ. Number three, Jesus is the faithful witness. There are many witnesses, but there's only one witness that is ultimately and absolutely dependable. And everything that this witness says is true, you can bank on it. We love witnesses in our culture. Witnesses at times who see things and can bring an account of what happened to bring the correct data and information to it. We love that. But, but I will say this, none of us are ultimate 
faithful, perfect witnesses. We, we don't get everything right, even as we see them. But know this, this is the one, the one of, book of Revelation, the one who is sourcing the book, the one the book is about. He is the faithful witness. And everything he says is true, and you can bank on it. Why is that important? Because the book of Revelation does have some kind of funky things in it. And you can walk away sometimes from the book of Revelation and go, what is going on? But know this, he is the faithful witness. And everything that he says, and because he is the source of it, everything that he says is true and it will happen. Bank on it. He's the faithful witness. Fourth, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He's not the only one uh, resurrected from the dead. Lazarus was before Jesus. What's the deal here? Well, Jesus is the premier one resurrected from the dead. He's the firstborn from the bed, from the dead, where many will be born out of his death and resurrection. I love Patterson, what he says here about this. Death is the tyrant that threatens all creation with irreplaceable loss and ultimate meaningless. But the one, Jesus Christ, who brings this prophecy has dealt with death and has rendered death helpless by becoming the firstborn from the dead. And listen to this last sentence he says. He is the first to be born out of the matrix of the penalty of sin. I love that. Maybe it's just because of the Matrix movie, but I just love that whole idea that he is the first one to be born out of that. Listen, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unlike any other resurrection that has ever taken place. Number five, he is the ruler of the kings on earth. He is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of the world, by the way, which is a central theme of the book of Revelation. He's got it, friends. And you may have woke up this morning like I did and watched a little bit of the news early this morning. And don't you just sometimes stand and go, this world is like messed up. Have you noticed that? I mean, broken, broken, broken. I mean, it's a broken world and broken people. And yet, you may be thinking, yeah, if he's sovereign, he's not doing a very good job. I, I understand. There are a lot of things I do not understand as to why what's happening is what's happening. But I do know this. I do know the source and the subject one, the faithful one. He says that he is the ruler of the kings and that he has the affairs of the world in his hands and he's caring for it and he's moving all things his way. And actually, I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm really good with that because there is one who is moving it all even if you and I don't get why all the things that happen, happen. He is sovereign over the affairs. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. Five things we've had so far. Jesus is the source, he is the subject, he is the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead, and Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Let's go to the next paragraph, and we're going to grab five more here. Uh, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, behold, he is coming. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce them and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. A few more things here. In verse 5, he loves us. I want to camp on that just for a second here because it is interesting. The text does not say, in the original language, it does not say he puts up with us. It really does say he loves us. 
It doesn't say that he's stuck with us. It says that he loves us. And I don't know where you're at in life right now. And I don't know where you're even at in your view of God right now. But I do want for you to know this. He loves you. He loves you. He, the one we are about to read about and see, like we probably don't really think about him enough, he loves you. By the way, I don't want to leave you guys out either because he loves you. And maybe today in our whole time, maybe that's the thing that you need to take home today, that reminder that the one we are about to see here in a little bit, that this is the one who loves you. He loves us. Also note in the text in verse 5, he freed us. Those who are in Christ, you've been freed from our sins by his blood. By the way, that would be a great spot for an amen. Let me kind of run up to that again and lead you into that. By the way, those who are no Christ as their Savior, the text says that from the source and from the subject, the one who is the faithful witness and all these other things, he has freed us from our, from our sins. Absolutely. Also, verse 6, he made us. By the way, this isn't talking about creation. This is talking about he made us, see in the text, a kingdom of priests to the Father. Not a club, not a commune, not ticket holders, but a kingdom of priests to the Father. I love that. I can spend some more time with that uh, in it, but, but I'll just say it this way. Uh, oftentimes we think of that as just an Old Testament concept and an Old Testament concept alone. But yet here it is brought into the New Testament. The Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 19, you find God has called a people, the Hebrew slaves, out of Egypt. He's brought them to him. He's set them right at his feet at the Mount of Mount Sinai. And God enters in and shows himself, enters into a covenant relationship with these people and in the text of Exodus 19 he calls them that you will become a kingdom of priests to me I will give you a sending base place and you will be priests to the world and by the way here it's so interesting Jesus brings that all the way back and John brings it all the way back in the text here and lets us know in this that we are to be the same thing he made us if you will a kingdom of priests to the father priests are people that are called out priests are people that have direct access to priests are ones that are sent out to speak on behalf of the Lord if you know Christ, we are part of a kingdom of priests, and you are in that kingdom of priests. He made us. Number nine, verse eight, he is eternal. It states in here uh, of the Lord God, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the one who is, the one who is to come. I'll just note that in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Revelation 22, verse 13, the last chapter of the book of Revelation, it's clearly Jesus uses the exact same terminology of himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega and the one who is to come. He is eternal. He's not just some amped up moralistic teacher. He's not just some hippie preacher dude that kind of got a lot of notoriety. He's not someone that was born and came into his spiritualness. He is eternal. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh when he came. And he is the second person of the Trinity. Number 10, he is coming. You see that, verse 7? He is coming. And by the way, it repeats it, if you will, the idea in verse 8, who is to come. Key theme in the book of Revelation is that the king, the lion who is the lamb, is coming. 
And you may say, you know, I've, I've heard talk about this uh, Jesus coming. And, you know, it's, it's like been like, if I have my dates correct, it's been like about 2,000 years and he ain't come yet. And I've heard you guys talking about this the whole, you know, over my life and, and reading and past and, and he hasn't come yet. Like, what's the deal, man? Hey, you know what? I don't know, but I do know this. He's the source and the subject, the faithful witness who's a ruler in all things. He holds all things in his hands. And know this, he said he's coming and bank on it. He's coming. Uh, uh, when's he going to come? I have no idea. No dates today. But I do know this, he says that he is coming. And by the way, the one that we are about to see is the one who says that he is coming. And he is coming. Hallelujah. Like, let's get on with the program. Today would be a great day, Lord. He's the source, he's the subject, he's the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead, he's the king of the kings. He is the one who loves us, has freed us, has made us, is eternal, and he is coming. Man, that's fantastic data. That's fantastic data. What's a good reply to that? I would say verse 6, to him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. Another way to say that, to him be the glory and dominion forever. Yes. It's kind of the idea of the text. I'll just say this, face down, all hail King Jesus. And all of this is tremendous, awesome data to know about Jesus. But I'll say this, knowing data about something, about someone, is not necessarily the same as seeing something. Now, I know you don't know me very well, but I am a very visual person. I'm a very visual thinker. Uh, I, you know, talk to me, uh, like act it out, and I'll remember it. Uh, I'm just that way. Uh, I just completed my doctorate here just a couple months ago, and in it, it, it's like in that, you know, that sounds really impressive. Don't be impressed. I wore them out. I'm the kid in the back of the classroom trying as hard as, trying three times as hard to get there, and they're like, you don't get this, Doug, yet, do you? Nope, I don't. Okay, we'll try another couple years with you, buddy. Okay, do you get it yet? No, I don't. I wore them out. <laughs> but let me experience it. And I totally remember we were talking this morning, just even at breakfast, about how sometimes when songs come on, songs will come on, and I'm like, oh, junior high, seventh grade, in the cafeteria, this is who was sitting at the table, what's going on with that song? I'm that kind of person, so all of you who are like me, I love you. <laughs> and all of you who are the Jeopardy fill in the blanks, I love you too, but man, I can't do that. Here's what's really cool. This data is put out. And then all of a sudden what happens in the text is said, okay, I got this awesome data in your lap. Now I want to show you something. I don't want to just tell you the data to fill in the blanks. I want to show you the one that I was just talking about. So all of us visual people, it's our moment. Here we go, buckle up. Verse 9. I, John, Remember John, one of the disciples, one of the apostles, who lived and walked and breathed and interacted with Christ? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. By the way, I'll say this, that one verse totally uh, uh, wipes out the prosperity gospel. Because all of a sudden, here is John. John is serving the Lord, loving the Lord, teaching the Lord, uh, growing in the Lord, and, and, and ministering in the Lord. And he gets banished far, far away. 
And by the way, that word tribulation there, it's not talking about the seven-year tribulation. And it's really cool. He says, hey, I'm your brother and partner in the hard times of doing the ministry of the gospel. By the way, how sweet is that? I mean, sometimes we, we can lift these apostles up into almost these worship beings. I think if John were here, John would be like, what in the world are you doing? I'm one of you. I'm with you. I love that. John. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, clearly it wasn't a trumpet, okay, because he hears a loud voice. But, but I'm pausing here because I want for you to understand what the text is doing here, what John is doing here. John is now trying to describe things that are indescribable. Okay, John is now trying to help us picture things because otherwise John would just say, hey, I I heard a voice, this is what was said, da-da-da-da-da, get the dad out. But John doesn't do it that way. John is describing so that we would see it. So I'm inviting you to start picturing everything that's being said here. John hears a voice. It's not a trumpet, but it's like a trumpet. It's unlike a voice he's ever heard before. Verse 11 saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Persia. Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And by the way, any of you who have what's called a red letter Bible, what color are those texts in? Red. That means that those, that's Jesus speaking those. Oh, by the way, he's heard Jesus' voice time and time again. And nowhere in the Gospel of Mark, nowhere in the Gospel of John, nowhere in the Gospel of Luke, nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew does any of them say that Jesus' voice sounded like a trumpet. Something's different here. Something else is happening here. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. Now, clearly he's not looking for wavelengths. He's looking for the source of the voice. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw. Now, what's happening here? John just gave these wonderful pieces of information about who Jesus is. And now he's all of a sudden turning and he's saying, I, John, I was in and I heard and I turned and I saw. What did John see? What did John see? Here we go, friends. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw. I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. I like that. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and his mouth came uh, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. By the way, there's a tendency when reading through Revelation one that we read all that and go, "Oh, kind of cool," and we just keep on reading. I, I want to hold it here for a couple minutes. And I want us for us just to ponder some of these things because I believe that John is clearly writing these to try and help us to see what he's seeing. So picture it. He sees three items in the text. The first one is in verse 12. He sees seven golden lampstands. How many lampstands? And what color are they? And what are they? They're lampstands. Okay, now picture them. How many of them? Seven. They're gold and they're lampstands. Your lampstand looks different than your neighbor's lampstand, but that's okay. John's wanting us to start picturing this. There's seven golden lampstands. He also notes in verse 13, there's one like a son of man. 
Now that term son of man is an Old Testament term. It's a title word that's referring to the Messiah. It's the one that would come as a man, as the equivalent represent, representative of mankind, for mankind, as the Daniel 7 one. Uh, it's not saying that, that, that necessarily the point is birthed of, it's the equal representative of. He is the representative of man. He is like man. He, he, is, he is man. By the way, I'll just pause on that because that is so cool. Jesus used the son of man term throughout all the gospel of Mark particularly, I love the gospel of Mark, through all of that particularly, and he is trying to get across that I am the equivalent representative for you. Why is that a big deal? Because when he went to the cross and he paid the payment for sin, he was the perfect equal representative of you and I. And it's all of that is being brought here into the text. So there's seven golden lampstands. There's one like a son of man. And then uh, the third thing is in verse 16, there's seven stars. It's important for us to note this whole scene. Let's think about this scene. In the center of it, the whole text centers on the Son of Man. And John describes what he sees. So see it with me. Verse 13, the Son of Man is in the midst of the center of the seven lampstands. So that means he's not like on the end. He's, he's nearby. He's far away. No, he's in the midst of. He's in the center of. So I think there's this idea that there's almost a circular thing. And he's in the middle of it. Because the whole thing is about uh, him. Note that he's clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That's a picture of an Old Testament priest. We don't quite get that today. But a person reading this text in these times when it was written would totally understand. It is like the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Messiah one. He is in a long robe. He is in a priestly garment standing in the middle of all this. And then verse 14 is commented about the hairs of his head were white. But I think what's interesting here is we have these like terms. His hair was not wool. And his hair was not snow, but it was like that. He's trying to describe this. So he had a full head of hair, I'm assuming, um, and it was white. By the way, you might think, well, in Israel, how do they know what snow looks like? Well, uh, Israel doesn't get a whole lot of snow, but there are places where you can see the snow. And snow is like really white, from what I remember, um, like this whole winter. And it's white, and he's using that terminology. It wasn't snow, but it looks like snow. And then wool, there's like dirty wool. Uh, they had all kinds of wool in Israel. And he's pulling what he knows, and he's saying, no, no, it's like white wool. And then his eyes. His eyes weren't a flame of fire, but they're like a flame of fire. You know, with their computer graphics, movies today, we can kind of picture that where it's like flame of fire. What does that mean? I don't think it's really that important right now. I really don't in the text. Life is in the eyes. Have you ever been with someone, or maybe it's even you, know, you today here, where, where like you're sitting with them, you're, you're interacting with someone, and they're there, and their eyes are looking at you, but there's no life? You know what I'm talking about? You know, like you're, uh, Karen and I, that never happens. You know, when we're sitting at the table talking, and it's like you're interacting, and you're just... But I, the life is in the eye. And here John brings to the eyes, and it's like, how do I describe this? It's not like his face is burning up, but, but, but something is unique about his eyes. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And, and I've read the Gospel of Mark, and I've read the Gospel of John, and I've read the other Gospels, and nowhere does it talk about the incarnate Christ's eyes were like this. Something grander is going on here. And then his feet, his feet were like burnished bronze. I think it's a steady cast 
standing strong in the midst of these. And his voice, his voice is like the roar of many waters. John heard Jesus teach and preach and interact in all kinds of venues and in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of tones. But nowhere has he talked about like, you know when he spoke it was like the roar of many waters. You know, here in the Midwest, have you ever been out in a field or maybe in the forest somewhere and you're by a babbling brook and it's just like you sit there and, and you're kind of in a babbling brook and with a lounge chair and it's like, I could just so fall asleep right now. That's such a be- it wasn't like that. It also wasn't like if you're out in the Colorado River where the river is moving along quite fast and it's quite impressive and it maybe has some rapids with it. John's kind of like, you know, no, it wasn't like that either. It was bigger than that. It was like you take that river and you put a whole bunch of roaring rivers with it and then you have them kind of maybe like Niagara Falls. Have you been in Niagara Falls where like uh, these rivers converge together and just... (laughs) I'm just trying to picture it here. And you're at the base of it and it's deafening and the power of it all. And it's just roar. And when he spoke, it's, it's, it's not like a babbling brook. It's just like when he spoke, it's like, whoa, the roar of many marauders. Something else has happened here because this is unlike anything we saw in any of the Gospels. And then in his right hand, he held seven stars. By the way, it doesn't say like seven stars, but I don't think that it was actually like the sun and six other suns, you know, hold on. I don't know how that went. I don't know. But, but it also was not the kind of thing where, you know, those stress reliever balls that you like you roll in your hand? It wasn't that either. Somehow it was like, what, so what does that all mean? I don't really know. And I don't think it's all that grand important. But might I just suggest maybe it's the kind of idea that he's holding all creation in his hand? And by the way, it's in his right hand, not his left hand. Uh, lefties, it's not a, anything against you as lefty. It's back in that day, the right hand was understood as the right hand was the hand of authority and so here in this he's holding these seven stars and then from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword I don't think it actually was a two-edged sword like a tongue coming out but he's describing how this is going on it wasn't like a butter knife it wasn't like a single dull knife it was like a double-edged sword by that terminology is used in scripture to reference the whole idea that the word of God can cut through all of the stuff and get right at it by the way have you noticed that nowadays that there's a lot of talk about all kinds of things and it's just kind of everywhere and sometimes you're like what in the world is this talk going hey know this when Jesus speaks he can like get at it And then his face, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Not like the sun as it rises in the morning, which you could just sit and look at. Not like the sun when it sets in the evening that you can just sit and look at. But it's the sun that's at full strength right in the day when you like look up into it, almost like looking into these lights. And it's like, it just, you feel like your retinas are going to burn out. Somehow, this is unlike Pastor Doug, what do they all mean? Tell us all the symbolism of it. Why why do we want to go there so quickly? Let me just ask a question. This Jesus being described in Revelation chapter 1, is this how you see Jesus? I think there's a tendency for us to kind of see Jesus as this hippie-sandaled preacher dude. 
is kind of a spiritual Mr. Rogers. He's kind of someone that's a little bit bigger than us, so that we can still call him God, but yet we really don't see anything like this. And I'm going to tell you that's the reality for me. I struggle to see Jesus big like this. And I call that we need to step up and see him bigger. Imagine if you and I saw Jesus like this every day, all the time. Friends, I would suggest that our lives would change. So John just describes it. Let's finish with what happens. Verse 17. When I saw him, remember this is John the disciple, I ran up and gave him a high five and a chest butt. Bro, great to see you. It wasn't that. But sometimes, again, that's how we can see Jesus, kind of like our best buddy or our boyfriend. But friends, look what happens. This is John. This is John, the one who was with Jesus for three years, saw Jesus for three years, interacted with Jesus for three years, saw him die on the cross, risen from the dead, ascend. And in this, what does he do? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Clearly, John is seeing something grander and greater and beholding of Christ than he ever beheld and imagined in his mind before. He is down, face down, on the ground in his smallness in light of the grandness of who Jesus Christ is. And then that's what John does. But, but what does Jesus do? Look at this. And so Jesus took his right hand and smacked John upside the head and said, John, I am so tired of you. When are you ever going to understand who I am? doesn't say that. But friends, I will say this. Don't we oftentimes think that about him? Like at what point in time is Jesus going to get so tired of you and I? At what point? Because it's got to be soon. Because Jesus has to be annoyed that we, you and I, we just struggle to grab a hold of who he is. That, that, that we fall and we fail. And I just sometimes I think, at what point in time is Jesus going to go, I'm so tired and bored of you. The one that we just read about, with the flaming eyes and the voice that roars... And, and, and whose tongue is like a double-edged sword, can cut right to it. Who, whose face is bright as can be, standing among the lampstands. That is the one. I wonder what he's going to do. John is face down, thinking he's going to die. And, and look what this one does. But he laid his right hand me. I have no idea what he did with the stars. Did he like throw them over back, put them down, put them in the light? I have no idea. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I think it's man enough to be able to say that is one of the sweetest statements in all of Scripture. Because John is scared to death and the grand second person of the Trinity totally understands what's going on in John's heart, soul, mind, and even his body. And he reaches down, like, I'm not going to even put my left hand. I want to put my hand of authority. And so I'm going to put my hand of authority. And John, fear not. Listen, friends. The Lord Jesus is not here to crush you. He loves you. He loves you. Fear not. 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Pastor Doug, go now and tell us what all these things mean. And no. Because we want to move too fast into what to do. And sometimes that's the perfect thing to do. But for those of you who are like in this place where you're like, come on, give me something to do, man. Give me something to do. I can't leave church without something to do. Let me say this. Martha, Martha, Martha. (laughs) Would you just please sit down? And by the way, in the text of that, And will you just do the one necessary thing? Just sit and behold me. Loved ones, our marvelous Savior Savior is far bigger, far grander. far more marvelous than you and I can even begin to imagine. And because of that, everything is different. That's it. That's it. That's all I want for us to see today. Took you that long to say that? Yeah. So how should we respond? I am going to give us one thing. Listen, as I read Revelation 5, and I would like for us to respond the way the heavens respond to the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. Listen as I read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within on the back and sealed with seven seals. This is referring to God the Father. God the Father is sitting on the throne and he has a scroll in his hand. And his hand in, in language, is, his, he's not grasping it tight. It's actually his hand is open. And the scroll is sitting there. And the scroll is the events that take place in the rest of the book of Revelation. And, and essentially, who, who can take the scroll and who can implement the things that are talked about in the book of Revelation uh, verse 2 and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and so I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it John's like if no one opens this we can't get on with the program in it and verse 5 and and one of the elders said to me weep no more John behold The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered. He has nikaoed so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Oh, and then you get the scene. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb 
a lamb standing. The lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent from all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So cool. And they sang. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. The choir is increasing in number with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, yes, amen. Hey friends, when the heavens and all of creation behold the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ, they enter into song. So let's do it. So if the worship team would come and prepare and lead us in song, I think that would be a great way for us to conclude our time. A time to where we have just walked and seen Christ. Maybe you are stuck on seeing Jesus Christ, the preacher dude. It's time to get out of that. Because you have been redeemed, if you know Christ is your Savior, you have been redeemed by this one. This is the one who holds you in his hand. This is the one who has given you forgiveness. This is the one who provides forgiveness. And if you don't know Christ is your Savior, oh, I invite you, come to the Lion who is the Lamb, the one of Revelation chapter 1. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who has done the work on the cross. He is the one who loves you. And he is the one that we adore and worship. It's time to see Jesus bigger. So if you would, would you stand? And let's sing big. <laughs>